Is it someone new? Someone from the sodden below? Newly come to Columbia to be washed clean before our prophet, our founders, and our lord? I just need passage into the city. Passage to the city. Brother, the only way to Columbia is through rebirth in the sweet waters of baptism. Will you be cleansed, brother? Come and be cleansed. Hallelujah! Hey there, welcome to the Lord's Death Podcast. My name's Brett, and today I want to go back to the roots of this show, back to the first episode. But instead of going somewhere beyond the sea, I want to take to the skies and explore Columbia, Bioshock Infinite's floating city in the clouds. But before we get too far, as usual, I want to give my thoughts and prayers about the third installation of the Bioshock series. Released on March 26, 2013, this was the third game that I ever pre-ordered, and was the second game that I ordered the special edition for. Now, granted, I didn't get the super special edition with the Songbird statue, but I got the regular deluxe edition that came with some posters and all that. Bioshock being my favorite series at the time, I was way too stoked for this game. And with great hype comes great disappointment when it failed to recapture that infamous Bioshock feeling. For me, at least. I still enjoyed the game, and I found Columbia to be an interesting opposition to the murky underwater adventures that I was so used to, but it felt more like an arcade shooter than the previous installments, and I had to look at it as its own separate game rather than a Bioshock 3, and that helped me better appreciate it for what it was, rather than what I was expecting it to be. It still clocks in at one of my favorite games of all time, but it was different than the other installments in the series. That being said, I did mention that the city of Columbia was a polar opposite to Rapture, and in many ways that is too true. From the obvious differences in color palettes, the bright and exciting colors of Columbia versus the doom and gloom shades of blue that we see in Rapture, all the way down to Columbia being a city founded on religious fanaticism, as opposed to Rapture which was created in part to escape the religious ideology on the surface. But we'll get into all that in a bit, let's start at the beginning, shall we? Columbia was, as mentioned before, a floating city in the sky. If Rapture was far beyond its years in terms of technological advancement, then Columbia would be eons past and set after Rapture, right? Well, Columbia was actually founded in 1892 by a Zachary Hale Comstock with the help of renowned physicist Rosalind Lutess, around 50 years before Rapture. And now there's a little bit of debate as to whether or not they exist in the same universe, but we'll go over that and hopefully make some sense of that statement in a moment. Zachary Hale Comstock was a preacher and war veteran, who, at some point, claimed he was visited by an archangel and shown a vision of a city in the sky, and was tasked with the creation of that city. He was able to convince the US Congress to give him funding by saying that the city would be built to uphold good American and Christian values, and spread them to the world. Being in the late 1800s, Congress really didn't need any more incentive than spreading the good American gospel. They gave him the funding that he needed, and he started right away. A couple years later, Comstock would meet Rosalind Lutess, who, in the early 1890s, was studying the fall of quantum atoms and began the theory that she could keep them suspended indefinitely, creating what other physicists would call quantum levitation, although she wasn't too thrilled about the moniker, and she referred to it as the Lutess field instead. The two very quickly began work on the city, and in the year 1892, the city of Columbia was founded, and the city began its travels around the world to showcase American exceptionalism and glory. Comstock, being a preacher and a war veteran, was in it for the religious idealism and the spread of American values. And on the other side, Lutess didn't really care about all that and just wanted to keep working on her Lutess fields. And with the entire city as her playground, she was able to further her research. As Columbia soared through the skies and made its rounds, 
there were docking stations set up in major cities where they would stop for national and international tours. In each of these docking stations, there were hidden transport rockets that could grant passage into Columbia via a coded signal. And there's our first parallel to Rapture, where there was really only one way into the city. Columbia was with rockets into the sky, and Rapture was with submersibles down into the ocean floor. But I want to take a minute to talk about the Lutes field and how it was able to keep an entire city floating in midair. The layman's explanation is that Lutes was able to trap an atom in midair and it would refuse to fall from its set point. It was rather exceptional because these atoms would impart that effect onto anything attached to them, meaning that they could build an entire city on top of these atoms and create a floating city in the sky that didn't require thrusters or fuel to stay afloat, something that would have been technically impossible at the time if they had to actually keep it afloat with fuel. However, the point at which the atom was suspended could be manipulated, as we see with buildings that were able to move both vertically and horizontally in Columbia. The gunships that we see in the game are also afloat due to these Lutes fields. The particles couldn't be moved on their own, however, and needed some sort of external force driving them. The gunships were controlled via thrusters that were on the bottom of each side of the craft, and the buildings typically had balloons that lined the foundation, as well as thrusters on the bottom, that would activate if they needed to move horizontally or vertically. The balloons worked something like a hot air balloon, although I don't really have any evidence supporting that other than concept art drawings. But because of this, the city wasn't made in one giant chunk. The buildings were all separate, meaning that the average citizen would have to be able to get from one place to another effectively, and there were a few different ways of doing so. There were zeppelins, hovercrafts, and little gondolas which were all floating around that could take you from place to place. And then there were also skylines, which were a series of rails that were placed mostly for the transportation of cargo, but they could be used by civilians if they needed to hitch a ride. And then if you wanted to stay on the ground and avoid vehicles and skylines altogether, then there were bridges in between the different sections that could be lowered down to allow passage from one floating building to the next. Although you'd have to wait for someone to operate it, and it didn't do it automatically. And if you think that suspending buildings in midair and allowing a moving city to be built on top of floating atoms was weird, here's where things start to get real funky. Continuing her work on the Lutes fields, Rosalind Lutes made an even more exceptional discovery. Parallel universes. She noticed that an atom was being observed and manipulated by someone or something else, and devised a way to communicate with this being by turning the Lutes fields on and off in patterns that could be recognized as Morse code. As it turned out, the person on the other side that she was communicating with was none other than herself from an alternate reality, but in a reality where she was a man named Robert instead of a woman named Rosalind. As I'm sure you can imagine, when you're one of the smartest people on the planet, I'm sure that finding a good lab partner might prove difficult and having another you as a partner might make research and development go twice as fast. The two of them working together allowed technological advancement to skyrocket in Colombia. And all within a year of its founding, in the year 1893, the Lutes twins were able to create the Lutes device, which allowed the opening of portals, or tears as we're going to refer to them as, to dimensions of their choosing. Now, being able to travel across the multiverse is really cool and all, but this would have a number of consequences, and I'm going to do my best to try to keep it on topic of how this affected Columbia as a city, rather than the events of the entire game. Because I could talk about this stuff for literally hours. So we're going to keep it down to three concise points. Religion, society, and technology. So firstly, as soon as Comstock heard of the discovery and saw it for himself, instead of seeing alternate realities, he saw them as visions of the past, present, and future given to him by an archangel, likely the same one that told him to build Columbia in the first place. Interpreting these tears as the word of God, Comstock was able to turn his position from preacher into prophet, giving him religious control over the residents of Columbia, which was a pretty big deal in an isolated floating city full of religious patriots. 
but of course being able to gaze into the future did not come without consequence. The constant exposure to the realm tears induced changes in his physiology. Comstock aged very quickly as a result and became sterile. Seems like kind of a weird thing to bring up, but it's going to make sense. As a man in his 20s, he looked at least twice that. And a decade later, he would look like an old man, full head of grey hair and wrinkles on his face and all. In one of his visions, he saw that Columbia would fall without his child as heir. Being sterile, that caused a slight issue. Seeking help from Lutess, she suggested that they find an alternate version of himself where he had a child. As luck had it, they didn't have to look far, and in Robert's dimension, Comstock saw his younger self, Booker DeWitt, who never accepted baptism after the Battle of the Wounded Knee and never became a preacher. Instead, he became a private investigator with Wizards of the Coast's favorite Pinkertons and fathered a daughter named Anna. Robert was sent to kidnap the child and bring her back to Columbia. Robert offered a non-violent solution and offered to wipe away any gambling debt that Booker had accrued in exchange for his daughter Anna. Booker, seeing this as a good financial opportunity, initially agreed, but at the last moment decided that he wanted to back out of the deal when it was too late. They were already taking Anna through a tear where she reached towards Booker, who was running towards her, and just as the tear closed, it severed her pinky finger. Her pinky finger being severed is important because now there are two pieces of her across different realities giving her some weird ability to open and close realm tears without the use of the Lutes device. This was incredible. Although, because of her abilities, tears started to open outside of the closed-off lab and the general public were able to see into them, maybe not fully understanding what they were. So now, in Columbia, Comstock took Anna as his child and renamed her to Elizabeth. It's also worth noting at this point that Comstock did have a wife. And it was unreasonable to assume that the people would accept that he suddenly had an infant child without her being pregnant. So he did as people do, and he created a lie that Lady Comstock was only pregnant for seven days before giving birth to this miracle child through the power of God. Lady Comstock didn't really like this idea, but she also understood that this was the best course of action that they could take at the moment. Although she would come to resent the idea, and we'll get back to that later. So as I mentioned before, now realm tears were opening up all over Columbia. This led to the other two main consequences of the tears by the Fink brothers Albert and Jeremiah Fink. That brings us to our second point, society. We'll talk about Albert Fink first, who was a composer, and when exposed to the realm tear, heard songs that were beyond his time. He didn't really understand what he was hearing, but he did have a good ear for the music. He was able to successfully plagiarize these songs and become one of the most celebrated composers in Colombia. Some of these songs included God Only Knows, which was sung as a barbershop quartet, and more mainstream hits like Girls Just Want to Have Fun, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, and Tainted Love, which were performed with a vocal ensemble and piano. All of these songs were taken into the very typical 1900s song style that you would think of, and they were actually pretty charming. Because he was taking radio hits from the future, he was always charting at number one on the charts. Because of this, he was able to open Magical Melodies, which was a studio, record label, and publisher in the Market District of Columbia. This would lead to Albert becoming one of the wealthier members of Columbia, putting him in the upper class, and allowing him to shape the culture of Columbia through his musical works. And we'll hop right over to number three, technology, with his brother, Jeremiah, who had a more profound impact with his technological advancements. He learned of the tears from his brother, Albert, who was plagiarizing music from them. Jeremiah was somewhat skeptical at first, but then he realized that as an American, it was his duty to exploit anything that he could make money off of, consequences be damned. You see, Jeremiah was already a businessman with a manufacturing monopoly on Columbia, who made things like the Skyhook, which was exactly what it sounds like. 
It was a handheld device with three rotating hooks on the end that allowed one to make use of these skylines, rails that floated through the air, as mentioned earlier, to get to different areas of Columbia. And again, as mentioned before, these rails were mostly used for freight purposes. But the skyhook was initially created to help rowdy teens ride the skyline, since they were already doing it anyways. But after enough broken necks and dead children, they decided to shift it to the workers to help them perform maintenance, and eventually gave them to the police so that they could maneuver around quicker. With owning Fink Manufacturing and having the direct support of Comstock, Jeremiah was already one of the wealthiest and most influential men in Colombia, being able to live lavishly and even pay off the police and militia when he was in a bind. But on August 12, 1894, he became even more powerful when his brother showed him the tears. While Albert was making a fortune off of plagiarizing music, Jeremiah did the same with technology and science to expand his company's product line. Most of his products ended up coming from our favorite seaside residence, Rapture. If you remember Dr. Yi Su Chong, the leading medical researcher in Rapture and creator of Plasmids, Little Sisters, and Big Daddies, then you should see where this is going. Fink and Su Chong had a sort of mutual exchange of information and technology for a while, and there were plenty of inventions that were created as a result of this collaboration. Su Chong gave Jeremiah the means to create plasmids, which Jeremiah took and called Vigors. They were ever so slightly different from each other, but the premise was still the same. Vigors granted power by drinking a concoction instead of injecting it directly into your bloodstream, but both were created with Adam harvested from the sea slugs. Getting those sea slugs, however, was an expensive endeavor for someone who resided in the sky, and for all of his vast wealth, he did lose a lot of money in going down to the sea floor to harvest these slugs. However, the process of creating these vigors did not go without a hitch. Several years later, in October of 1900, the Devil's Kiss vigor, one that allowed pyrokinesis, accidentally caused a fire to a factory building. To stop the spread of the fire to the rest of Columbia, the building was separated from the rest of the city and the workers were left to die killing 359 people. That is a lot of people considering that Columbia had a population of an estimated 50,000 residents. This caused unrest in the population, understandably, leading people to lose faith in the safety of these vigors and production was halted for about eight years, only for it to come back by police demand. People were still apprehensive after all these years and the police were forced to justify it by saying it was a necessary evil. And concerns were voiced all the way to 1912, where Jeremiah held a raffle and fair to promote his products, where he gave away certain vigors as a show of good faith. Unlike Rapture, though, the people were still largely apprehensive and vigors were not largely used outside of militant groups. So there wasn't the degeneration of society via drug use, basically. Outside of vigors, Su Chong and Fink collaborated on other projects such as helping each other create Su Chong's Big Daddies and Fink's Songbird and the Handyman. The Songbird, as you might guess, is a giant steampunk bird that was made of a human and a machine. It was bonded to Elizabeth, much like the Big Daddies were bonded to the Little Sisters, and it would protect her fiercely, but it had no weapons to speak of. However, it was equipped with large talons that it could use to pick up and give its foes the good old yeet. The Handyman was a sad experiment. The intention was to help the sick, disabled, and severely injured have a second chance at a quote-unquote normal life giving them a new body, but it ended up harming the subject more than anything else. It was a large steampunk suit that was grafted onto the body of a man which caused intense physical pain both during and after surgery. In quotes with the handyman during combat, they suggest that they cannot sleep due to the intense pain and were often manic and depressed. They were very quick to lash out into fits of rage as a result. It was a dangerous and sad project. So that was a little long-winded, but it's all important, I promise. 
through the tears, we have the religious ideation in Colombia being amplified because of Comstock's claim as a prophet, the city's culture being skyrocketed into infamy because of Albert Fink's music, and the technological advancements made by Jeremiah Fink were far beyond that of the surface. And this all led to Columbia experiencing a golden age for about 10 years or so. I briefly mentioned how the Songbird and Handyman had a steampunk appearance, similar to the technology in Rapture, so let's run over the aesthetics of Columbia real quick. The buildings in Columbia were mostly neoclassical with a colonial American influence. This meant that buildings were often tall, boxy, and had columns and windows for days. Think of the White House as a prime example of what the buildings were like, since that's what they were really modeled after. The streets were often cobbled, and the storefronts had a sort of small-town, old-timey feeling that you would get from looking at pictures from that time. Being above the clouds, the weather was almost always sunny and delightful, making for much better mental health conditions than the residents of Rapture, who were deprived of sunlight and were often depressed and vitamin deficient. Because of all the natural light, buildings were typically built with a lot of windows, as mentioned before. Why waste time with lamps when you can get it all directly from the source? The people were dressed as you might expect someone from the late 1800s and early 1900s to dress. Men in suits and hats with a mustache for garnish, and women in the dresses of the time. The aesthetic of Columbia was very quaint and old-timey. On the surface, it was a beautiful place to be. But let's get back to the Golden Age for a second so that we can set up the two main factions and get into why the city wasn't so beautiful on the inside. Lady Comstock, as mentioned before, was not really thrilled that her husband had suddenly come home with a child and was asking her to lie about it being hers. Long story short, years later she would accuse Lutece of being the mother and banished her and Elizabeth from the house. Elizabeth was basically locked in a tower like Rapunzel, and Lutece was forced to find a shop elsewhere. Which wasn't hard because it was a pretty big city. But in 1894 she confronted Comstock about Elizabeth's origins and caused a struggle. In a panic, whether intentionally or not, Comstock ended up killing his wife. His house servant, Daisy Fitzroy, overheard the struggle and went to see what happened. Comstock, seeing her as the perfect scapegoat, being a black woman, Comstock put the blame on Daisy for the lady's death. He knew that the people of Columbia would not question it for a second. See, while it was happy-go-lucky on the surface, it still had that old 1800s bigotry ingrained into it. People of color, homosexuals, and other deviants were looked down upon. Being a city built on old-fashioned American values and Christianity, this was a time where racism was not something that was hidden, but something that was a mundane part of society that was accepted. America was built on racism, and Columbia was no different. Because of this incident, Daisy was forced to run. She fled to Finkton, which was a district dedicated to manufacturing that was dominated by slums and factories. This was where all the exploited workers who couldn't afford to eat because they were either being paid close to nothing or nothing at all lived. But you didn't really see that in Colombia because these people were hidden in shanty towns underneath the factories so that they wouldn't be seen or heard. It was in Finkton that Daisy created a resistance movement, the Vox Populi, which was a protest group against the founders as well as an equal rights movement for people of color and the other laborers. The founders were basically a group of elites that ruled Colombia. Created by Comstock and being named after the founding fathers of the United States, it was instilled with militarism, elitism, and extreme xenophobia. It's also worth noting that the police were aligned with the founders and would often take joy in hunting down those in the Vox Populi. A few years later, Columbia was involved in the Boxer Rebellion, and if you don't know what that is, that's an actual real-life event, you should go look into it, where they opened a fire on the citizens in Beijing, announcing to the world that the floating city was heavily armed and quite the threat. Because of this, the US government called for the city to be recalled, but Comstock gave them the finger and formally seceded from the United States. 
July 6, 1902 would become Columbia's National Day of Independence, causing the founders great joy and those in the Vox Populi great distress. This is the period that I kind of want to stay in, as it is the final form of Columbia, and all of the religion, technology, and the like were established and it didn't change much to their end. So this event only amplified the view of the founders. They became even more xenophobic, extending their hate to the very country which they came from, the United States, referring to them as the Sodom Below, and likening Colombia as another ark for another time, implying that the citizens of Colombia were escaping from sin via a modern-day Noah's Ark. Comstock doubled down on all this hatred and used it to alter the citizens' view of American history. Abraham Lincoln was labeled the apostate for ending slavery, and his killer, John Wilkes Booth, was revered as a saint for, you know, pew pew. George Washington was somewhat deified, being viewed as the front line against the demonic Abraham Lincoln. Now calling the man who ended slavery the devil was, as you can imagine, bad for anyone who wasn't white. No longer being tied to the United States, and no longer having to adhere to their anti-slavery and workers' safety laws, racism and elitism weren't only normalized, but encouraged. Captured members of the Vox Populi were often forced into slavery, or some other form of indentured servitude, most of which were people of color, and interracial couples were not allowed to marry or be together in any other capacity than master and slave. We see this at the beginning of Bioshock Infinite at the fair, when an interracial couple are being made a spectacle of and you can win a baseball to throw at them. It's really nice. So this would lead to, over the next decade or so, a civil war between the two major factions. It was the Vox Populi against the Founders, and the events of the game happened right towards the end of that, and it was also the permanent end of Columbia. Uh, the TLDR is that Elizabeth's powers were amplified and Columbia was literally erased from existence. But we're not really going to go too deep into that because that is a, an entire thing on its own. So, with classism, racism, and all the other goodisms, this is a good place to establish the class hierarchy in Columbia. You had the lower class, which was pretty much anyone non-white, as well as the working class, who pretty well only either worked at the factory or were a slave to someone rich. You would not rise up from the lower class, especially if you were non-white. Any attempt to rise up would lead to torture and re-education so that you learned your place at the bottom and stayed there. And then there was a middle class which consisted of people running shops in the market district or something to that nature. These people would have modest homes, the typical nuclear family, and were generally happy to be there. They would typically ignore wrongdoings to the lower class because they believed that they were in the lower class because they were being punished by divine judgment. And then finally the upper class which was chosen by divine right. These were people like Comstock, Fink, and other members of the Founders who controlled Columbia and were in charge of all the doctrines. There was even a company made, Duke and Dimwit, which were two puppets that would put on shows to teach propaganda to children and reinforce it in adults through toys and literature. The upper class, believing that they were God's chosen, were in full control of everything, the government, economy, and societal expectations. Whatever they said, went. For both the middle and upper class, there were plenty of amenities and attractions for the citizens to see outside of their work. There were restaurants such as the Blue Ribbon, a beach called Battleship Bay that housed an arcade with live music and events, and even the Hall of Heroes, which was a museum which you could visit to learn about the vast and inaccurate history of the United States and Colombia. There was no shortage of wonders to see, and that was necessary to make sure that the citizens were complacent and each location served as a tool to brainwash and indoctrinate people. From an economical standpoint, it was hard to get anywhere beyond your class, as mentioned for the lower class, but this did extend to the middle class to an extent. 
50% of each silver eagle, the currency in Colombia, was sent directly to Comstock. If you thought you were being taxed out the ass and your take-home paycheck is disappointing, Comstock is laughing at you from the clouds. 50% of your earnings were sent to the state, which meant that it was very hard to get ahead. And even if you did manage to get ahead, Comstock could just inflate the value of the Silver Eagle and make sure that you stayed in your place, because they can do that. This was all by design. The economy and society in general were reliant on the blind obedience of the lower and middle class so that the greed of the upper class would go unquestioned. And that brings us right around to our last point, religion, which we touched on briefly, but we're going to go over in some more detail. At this current point, the religious view in Colombia was no longer strictly Christian. They took Christianity and added their own fun little elements by turning George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin into religious icons. Each of the three were given a symbol of their presence and gift to mankind. Washington, the sword of justice, Franklin, the key of industry, and Jefferson, the scroll of law and order. Comstock was their prophet and leader who went unquestioned, and his daughter Elizabeth was viewed as the Lamb of God, and the people believed that she would fulfill Comstock's prophecies. Aside from the weird America stuff, it was pretty much just Christianity. Even upon entering Columbia, each person entered to a heavenly garden that was a temple to Comstock, where they would be baptized and born anew in Columbia. Devotion to any other religion was strictly not allowed. If you were in the upper and middle class, you practiced this form of Christianity and would be re-educated if your belief was questioned. In the lower class, there were plenty of Chinese immigrants who practiced Buddhism in private. Chen Lin, who was a gunsmith and machinist, along with his wife, were the ones who led this practice, although it wasn't very widespread outside of the Chinese immigrant group. Although they did have to practice in private because, as mentioned before, you weren't allowed to practice anything that was not Comstock approved. Then there was the Fraternal Order of the Raven, which was an extremist group born of the Founders. While white supremacy was normalized and encouraged, these guys took it to the next level. They were kind of the Clan of Columbia. The Ravens were a group who deified John Wilkes Booth and took it upon themselves to continue his legacy of assassination by getting rid of key members of the Vox Populi and anyone who threatened Comstock or the Founders. The members of this group were typically upper class, as you might have guessed. So I find it very interesting that opposite Andrew Ryan's no-religion policy in Rapture, Comstock had a one-religion policy in Columbia. Worship God or die. But what I find fascinating is that amidst the radical form of Christianity, science is accepted and allowed to flourish. Normally you find people on either side of that argument being either for science or for religion, but not for Comstock and the people of Columbia. Comstock believed that the scientific knowledge was a blueprint of God's work and that it could be practiced as long as it was in the name and service of God. After all, they wouldn't have a Columbia without science. That being said, evolutionism was discouraged and was not taught in schools. Instead, they taught a form of Darwinism that was fashioned to fit their holy agenda. Survival of the fittest through God's will and all that. So during these 10 years where Columbia was seceded from the United States to the point where it all came crumbling down, Colombia was golden on the outside, but deeply rotting on the inside. It kept the facade of being a lavish paradise where people thrived under independence and God, while the inside of each building was a pot of greed and elitism. For all the differences to Rapture, the underlying theme was a direct parallel. One man sitting at the top with his henchmen controlling everything to make it their own personal paradise, everyone else be damned. So what was it like to live there? That's the main point that I want to get to. Well, if you were a white person outside of the lower class, I imagine that you're doing probably just fine. You were happy, healthy, and had plenty of thoughts and prayers to give out to those who were less fortunate than you. 
If you were in the upper class, you would have servants to do any hard labor for you, while you just sat back and enjoyed the view. Technological marvels and monuments to greatness all bathed in rays of gold. It was a sight to behold. Aesthetically, it was marvelous. But societally, it was kind of hell. If you were part of a marginalized group or were working in the factories, you were hungry, tired from being overworked, and angry at those who kept you there with no end to suffering in sight. You couldn't leave, so you really only had two options. Work to death or fight. And ultimately, those two options would have the same end. If you fought back against Comstock and the founders with the Vox Populi, you would almost certainly find death, or enter a brand new level of hell being tortured if you were captured alive. Columbia served the few who were at the top and exploited those at the bottom. Not having a code of ethics or set laws to follow other than their own, it was a glorified anarchist state. So, with that being said, what do you think? If Columbia never engaged in the Boxer Rebellion and didn't secede from the states, do you think that maybe it could have transitioned into a place where everyone was accepted? Or do you think that institutionalized racism was always going to prevail one way or another? Or what if Columbia was created without a religious doctrine in its roots? Do you think that it could have evolved to be a society focused on the evolution of mankind through technology without the need for bigotry? You can find us online at Lord to Death on your favorite social media or podcast websites. And until next time, if a bearded man in the clouds asks you to sell your baby and join his sky cult, you should probably turn the other cheek and flip him the bird. <laughs>